Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 181st episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. This is such an important episode for both our male and female teens and young adults. Teens and sexuality can give moms a lot of gray hairs. And today we are going to talk about consent. Did you know in our culture that we've only been really talking about consent for the past 20 years? In this episode, we talk about the history of consent starting with Title IX and how that's evolved over the past 50 years. We talk about the Clary Act and explore if we are in a rape culture or consent culture. We cover a lot of territory in this episode. Talking about consent is way more than a girl just saying no or yes. We dive into the nuances of what a real consent is. Dr. Laura McGuire is an internationally recognized consultant, survivor, researcher, seminarian, and author of the book, Creating Cultures of Consent, and the Sexual Misconduct Prevention Guidebook, Consent and Conduct for Higher Education Campuses. Dr. McGuire is a certified member of the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and the Society of Professional Consultants. Dr. McGuire lives in the United States where she works as an adjunct professor at Widener and Dominican University and CEO at the National Center for Equity and Agency. So welcome, Dr. Laura McGuire. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is of such an important topic. And so right now you have a new book that just came out. It's your second book, right? Yep. And it's called the Sexual Misconduct Prevention Guidebook. So I just read that. And wow, that is an interesting book. Can you tell the audience about your second book and the title of that book? Yes. So the first book I published came out a year ago, and it's called Creating Cultures of Consent, a Guide for Parents and Educators. And that one's really more for the K-12 audience and is very much an introductory level avenue for getting into this very sometimes complex and big topic of consent. And then for people who want to do that deeper historical, cultural, social science dive, that second book really answers those questions. Yes. So before we jump into all of this, the first question I ask all my guests is, are you a mom? I am. I, I have 
two wonderful children. <laughs> so what are their ages? So my eldest is 13 and okay. my youngest is 10. Wonderful. So you have preteens. And I have teens. a teen. Yes, a teen and a preteen. I can't believe it. <laughs> wow. Yes. So are they boys or girls? Um, the eldest is uh, my son and then uh, my daughter's the younger one. Yeah. So what we talk about today is very personal, too. I mean, it's all personal, but it's even more personal because you're a mom. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think those are always the best conversations or the best people to listen to. And sounds like everything I've, I've heard on your podcast very much aligns with this. It's blending both what we know from research and our lived experience, right? That's kind of this perfect combination. Yes, absolutely. So goodness, that history so this year marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX and how it is key in higher education and the evolution of this important monumental law. So can you talk about Title IX and how that's evolved? And I know this, these are big questions. And also, so could you also talk about the Clary Act? Yes. So Title IX comes about in the 1970s and a lot of people even then focused on its relevance to sports, but that's not how it was originally imagined. The person who really was the forerunner in this conversation was a professor at a university who wanted to be able to move up and take on different roles, and women at that time were not able to. And so she gets together with a bunch of other brilliant legal and uh, social people, and they ask for, for this legislative change. And it impacts all kinds of areas they couldn't have imagined, right? And some of the early ones included sports, yes. Um, but now it intersects with everything from LGBTQ inclusion to the rights of students with disabilities to sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, and how all of those things play out in education, because it's not just for higher education. Title IX applies to kindergarten through grad school. Everybody is included in Title IX. Yeah. And when you told the story about why the Clary Act, what came about, mm -hmm. that was just so haunting and disturbing. So could you talk about that? Yes. So I, I will tell you, and I haven't said this to any, any interviews yet. When I wrote that section of that first chapter, I, I was weeping the entire yeah. time that I wrote it. And I knew the story, obviously, um, to be at the point where I was writing a book that included it, but to actually have to do like a lot of deep research on exactly what happened and how this pain was turned into something so purposeful was... It's, it's a truly heartbreaking story. And to not get into the darker aspects of it, but basically it was, you know, parents, family, like all of us who were really concerned about their daughter's safety going to college. And they even switched her from one school to another because they had a bad feeling. They were very concerned about would she be really protected without them being nearby? And they tried to do the research that they could on that and put her into this school they felt very good about. And she was hurt in multiple ways and killed. And of course, that, that destroyed them emotionally on so many levels. By a drunken student. Yes, by a fellow student. But what's amazing is they, they could have just sat in that pain and grief and left it there, right? And said, we tried to do everything. We were so conscious of this as a concern and life failed us. But instead they said, no, there's probably ways that we can better protect the next family, the next child. And so they fought for, again, legislative change, which is awesome, and created the Clery Act. And that is an act which all college campuses have to comply with where they have to report any kind of dangers. So this isn't just 
assault or murder, but it's also things like if there's a lot of fires in the buildings or if there are robberies next to the school, um, all different kinds of dangerous or criminal activity. And so parents can look that up before they send their kids to a school. So they're making at least a more informed decision, even though, of course, in life, there's no guarantees. So where do they look that up? Is it on the college's website? Yes. So on the homepage, they are supposed to, in order to keep with compliance, have a link that uh, shows their recent year's reports. And again, that is both for the campus and anywhere that students frequent. So it's even a property that is nearby the campus. So they can really look at the area as well. I think that's really helpful. And I'm not sure if all moms know about that. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. Yes. Yeah, I think there's there's so many things that uh, we don't know and we don't know that we don't know and are really helpful in keeping our kids safe. Yeah. Another thing I was struck by is the Saturday Night Live sketch from was like 20 years ago. Yeah. Because one of the things that I got from reading your book is the cultural political impact on all of this and, and how that is in flux. And I think that Saturday Night Live sketch really shows that. Can you explain that? Yes. So this is really interesting. And, and you're right, it was only about 20 years ago, which it isn't that long, right, in our no. social history. <laughs> we were really thinking this was a funny thing, this concept of consent. So Antioch College starts the first affirmative consent programs and really is focused on making them something that's actionable and something that is reflected in their policies. And this is the kind of consent conversations that are now becoming very normal, right? So getting verbal consent, checking in with somebody, reading nonverbal cues, making sure they feel safe and comfortable to communicate, all those things that we're now like, oh yeah, of course. But when they first did it, this was the first time a school of any kind was doing that. And people thought it was bizarre and hilarious and ridiculous <laughs> to do such a thing. And Saturday Night Live made a skit about that. And basically it was, you know, characters kind of going back and forth and saying, can I do this? Can I do that now? Is this okay? Oh no, I'm going to get in trouble. And like they win a, a prize at the end, right? And what it really reflects is how far we have come, but also why these things are still so challenging for many families and communities, because these are really recent conversations. And yeah. I would say only in the past five to 10 years have we even begun to take them seriously. But there's still a lot of hesitation because of the things that are reflected in that skit. I think what you said is, like if someone pays for a meal, that they think that they're entitled to something? Yes, exactly. And and even, you know, the movies we grow up watching are songs that we sang to or are still coming out on the radio and jokes that we make, right, reflect a culture that doesn't think this is something we should take serious. And then those subliminal messages get ingrained into our psyche and we don't even think we're teaching our children something that would be the opposite of consent culture or creating a safe environment. But sometimes we are or friends are or family members are. And the more we're aware of that, the more we can consciously combat it and do the opposite. Mm, that's great. So you said in your book that you, I think you asked an audience something like, did you grow up in a consent culture or a rape culture? Yes. <laughs> this is one of my favorite <laughs> questions to ask. So now everyone's going to know if they come to one of my talks and I ask this, they're going to say, oh, I know what to do. So, And the reason I ask that is because I know a lot of people think that, well, rape culture sounds so serious and so violent and so clear that clearly I would not have uh, grown up in that or I would have known that. And the reality is it is a powerful term, right? It's a very heavy term. But what it's messaging is just what we talked about. The subversive comments, the jokes, 
the social scripts, as we call them in the social sciences, right? The way we communicate with each other, the way we normalize kind of romantic um, tropes that really are harmful and taking agency away from people. But that is just embedded in pretty much all of our lives, all over the globe, all through history. And so I asked that question to get people to think about yeah, this is something I grew up with. Even if I now consciously am trying to combat it and trying to change things, or even if I grew up in an environment where I did feel safe myself, and maybe I, a lot of times I'll hear people say, "I don't, well, I don't know anyone who's been assaulted in my family or in my community," and what I often say to that is, you know. Usually when we can say, I don't know any survivors or I know very few, it might be because most of them don't trust us. We're in this work, right? You and I, I'm sure, can say, oh, no, people tell us constantly their stories because we are forward-facing, visible advocates and allies to survivor experiences. And at one time I asked on a panel um, people that and another panelist was saying, no, 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 no. I grew up in consent culture because I was told to respect women. And, and again, that's, that's understandable reaction. But the reality is, is even that statement is what we call benevolent sexism, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm here to protect those innocent, aka childlike individuals, instead of empowering them and promoting their agency. And of course, standing up for any person who, you know, feels harmed or is in danger. But it can be easy to kind of gloss over that. And again, the more we recognize, yeah, this, this is a culture, a rape culture we've all had to deal with, but we can be actively working to change that to a consent culture. I agree. Is slut shaming and victim blaming, is that still a thing? Absolutely. <laughs> and I wish it wasn't, right? I wish the answer to that was, oh, no, this is something from history. Uh, we've long forgotten. Of course, it's a huge issue, right? And and we see this, uh, you know, across generations, across cultures, across communities, geographies, etc. Slut shaming is this idea that many of us have still in the forefront of our mind, and others are trying to constantly realize our bias and address that if somebody is considered to be hypersexual quote unquote promiscuous, if they have a sexual history with a lot of partners, if they're involved in sex work, all of these different things, then they contributed to violence they've experienced, right? So, well, they were giving people mixed messages. Too short of skirts or showing too much cleavage. Exactly. And, and a lot of that really boils down to that we think certain members of our community do not have the ability to consent, do not have the ability to say no, because they're already saying yes in our minds, which is completely untrue. But again, something that comes up a lot, and we see this in the news, we see this in court cases today, where this is a common cultural narrative. I see it a lot in the comments on social media with high-profile cases. And then victim blaming is kind of the umbrella that shaming fits under. And that is this idea that, again, a victim is somehow responsible. Maybe they were being really upsetting to the aggressor and that's why they went after them. Or yes, they are. They're so flirtatious. And of course they were harassed at work. I mean, men can't really control themselves. They're just programmed that way or all these different things that we say often in media and society, but we also often hear in our families, in our households, in our communities, in our faith communities, right? And the more we have these conversations, the more we now start to see it everywhere and can address it and say, you know what, I, I know we often have said that through the years, but actually it's not right. It's It's never true. No one's ever guilty of causing someone to harm them. It's 100% the responsibility of the other person to not be causing harm. Yeah. What are three ways to teach your children about consent before they head back to school? Mm. The, the number one thing I always say is to really think about what, what do you want to get out of this conversation with your kids, right? And to set some clear kind of goals and objectives because 
sometimes we sit down with our children and we're like, hey, school, it's scary. Be careful out there, right? Um, that's that's not a great goal and objective, right? That's not even, it doesn't have one in it. So what what is the purpose of talking about this stuff? And it really should center on, I want to make sure my child knows how consent works, right? How communication, again, verbally and non-verbally works. Because I want them to know that if someone is pushing their boundaries, if someone is not listening to their no, and even if someone is not really listening for a yes, if they're okay with them just being silent or saying, I'm not really sure, then that's not okay, right? And they can stand up for themselves and say, actually, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. And that if someone ever infringes on those boundaries, again, it's not their fault. We're not going to blame them, but we do want to help them. We do want to know what's going on so we can support them and help them explore options there. And the other side too, we don't want them causing harm. We don't want them to be asking someone again and again, please, 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 can I go out with you? Please, 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 can we go further? And they're not really looking for that enthusiastic yes either. That is so key. The other things I would say is make sure you're not using fear-based tactics, right? So don't flood them with horror stories, you know, oh, like, don't just read them that really heartbreaking story, like from the, what caused the Cleary Act, right? It's important for us to be aware of those things. And yes, our children at certain ages, like right before college might need to be aware. Yeah, things are really serious out there. However, <laughs> that is not where we want to be operating from. We want to, again, empower them to make them feel like, yes, I have the ability to navigate interpersonal situations, to get help if I need it at any point, and to feel strong in, in what I'm saying, right? I, my yes or my no is powerful and should not ever be faced with any kind of negotiation. And... I think all of those things as an ongoing conversation, right, as something we touch on throughout the year, really then embed in our student, our children's minds, and allow them to embody those concepts. How early should moms start to talk to their kids about this? Uh, always a, a common question, right? So, and the, and the answer, which a lot of people are surprised by, is honestly, as soon as they can understand the word no right, which is around 18 months old. And people might say, oh my gosh, I am not going to talk to my 18 months old about sexual boundaries. And of course you're not, no, right? But you are going to talk to them about consent, which is not about just sexual situations. Of course, it must be present in those, but it's about anytime any human is interacting with another human and trying to communicate. Respecting people's knows if they don't want to play with you. Or with our children, again, if they are being tickled, if they say, no, 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 respect that, pull away, say your no is important. If you want to tickle, if you want to play, I'm going to respect when you say, yes, I want to do this. Same thing with family members. If they say, I don't want to touch them, I don't want to give a hug, they can still greet them warmly in other ways. And so building those things in those toddler years makes it really easy when they're a teenager and they're dating and you're saying, okay, remember, we're going to get affirmative consent. We're going to look for enthusiasm. We're going to look for an ongoing yes. Just like when you're a toddler and you're playing with your friends, just like the way our family interacts with physical touch, right? Doesn't that make sense? Of course it does. I've learned this my whole life. So that's what we're really trying to do there. Hmm. No, that's, that's really good. I really like what you said about staying away from fear tactics. Like moms, we go into fear. And so we can just spew out our own fear, which is not helpful because you're absolutely right. As a therapist, what we're doing is we are telling our kids that they're powerless in some ways yeah. by like, you know, with using all the fear, like someone could do this to you. Like even with my own daughter, she had a really healthy temper. She was a very strong girl. And I said, you know what? You are very strong and you can use this strength and this fire with any relationship that you have to protect yourself. So even like helping them connect the dots that this thing that you feel free and safe to be angry with me, like you can do that with other people. This is a good thing. I mean, I didn't love it as a mother, 
But helping her see her own strength right there was super helpful. And I love that you said starting really young, because that's true. It's true. I mean, I think often moms, you know, and I was guilty of this in the earlier years, like my daughter was fully developed at 10 or 11, you know, and so she couldn't wear what a lot of the other kids were wearing, but she did. And so I was always talking about cleavage or whatever. I think it's almost a natural thing that we're trying to protect our kids, but we have to be very, very careful about that. And it feels natural to do that. And as a mom, we just want to bubble wrap our kids (laughs) so they can't see their cleavage or their butts, but that's not helpful. So I, I think this is such an important conversation that we're having. So what are some other top mistakes made when discussing consent and what can moms do instead? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing this up because this is so important. And it really, it, it comes down to, we have good intentions, like you're talking about, you know, we, we want to just protect them. We want them to be okay. And we don't often realize that, again, research shows that those messages, those fear-based messages, or, you know, watch out, you don't want to get that kind of attention or um, don't, don't hang out with anybody because then nobody can hurt you those come from such a good place, right? But again, we have, we have a lot of data that shows it causes people to more let be likely to not speak up for themselves in relationships and to not tell us if something does happen, Mm. right? Because then we're like, oh yeah, they told me this is horrible and scary. And they gave me all these messages about what I need to wear and how to stay away from people. And so, yeah, they're going to blame me if I tell them that, things didn't work out, or I thought I was strong. I am very vocal and I have all these accomplishments. And yet in the moment I froze, right. Which we know is the number one response to trauma and assault. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So the number one thing I hear from, for moms in particular, that I would encourage people to reframe is, you know, I tell them not to date or dads will make a lot of jokes, especially with daughters. Yeah, I told them, you know, you're not allowed to date till you're 60, right? How many of us heard that, Greg? I did. Or I'm going to clean my shotgun when they come over. Right, I'm right, in the right. South, so <laughs> that's yes. a common thing. And again, the intention is I love you. I want to keep you safe. But what it tells the child is, again, you don't have the ability to set your own boundaries. You don't have agency. And we know that there's these two concepts that are really key in people preventing themselves from getting into situations where they're not safe and for, again, seeking help if something goes wrong. And that's called sexual agency and sexual subjectivity. And this is really, again, about feeling strong in your own experience with people. And as we get into the teen and college years over our sexual experiences, this is so important for young women. And we also see this cross-culturally. We see in cultures that are considered to be, quote unquote, and this is really amazing concept, rape-free. They do not have concepts of sexual assault or domestic violence in them. Wow. What are they doing differently? They're very much empowering their young women to not have any shame about their sexuality, to be able to talk to their parents about how do I negotiate boundaries? How do I tell a partner what I want and what I don't want? Those are really what shifts the paradigm. And I also want to speak to this about our sons, because I think the messages they get are also fear-based. Don't you dare get anyone pregnant. Don't you mm-hmm. dare make me have to come down there because someone said you harassed them. That's a terrible message as well, because one, it's not telling them what to do. <laughs> it's only telling them, oh, there's a bunch of mysterious things not to do. And basically they're just, don't get in trouble. I'm not going to explain how, just don't right? They're not teaching them what consent looks and feels like, but it also doesn't acknowledge that they deserve consent. Mm -hmm. They deserve to be able to say, no, I don't want to have sex. And it doesn't mean maybe you have to say, oh, then what's wrong with you? Are you gay? And maybe they are gay, but if they're heterosexual, you know, they can still say, no, they need to be able to feel that. Um, We hypersexualize boys the same way we hypersexualize girls. And we need to change that. Yeah. So, yeah, I have so many stories of people that just resonate as you're talking, like that I've seen them in my private practice. 
And I remember this one girl, her father was very strong, dominant man. And so she was humiliated because if she went out on a date, he would sit both of them down and he would say, if you put your tongue down her throat, if you touch her breasts, I'll kill you. Because I think there are some, like the agency part is so huge. So what happened to this girl is her freshman year, all of a sudden she has this horrible eating disorder. So she had to come home from college. And when I met with her, what I found out was that she had sex with this boy and she didn't probably want to even have sex with this boy, but she had no agency to stop him. She was used to a dominant father telling her what to do, and she never learned the skills to have agency. So that's so, so important. What are some of the skills that both boys and girls need to learn? And so if we're not scaring them, what are the skills they need to have agency? Yeah. So this is this is like the fun, exciting part, right? Because we've talked about all the, the not to do things too, but here's here's what we want to teach, right? We want to start with having them really be able to connect with their mind and body, right? It doesn't start with, here's how you interpersonally connect. You have to start with the intrapersonal, the within yourself. What do I like? What does feel good? What makes me feel safe? What is my communication style? boundaries do I want, right? Maybe I, maybe I start with even how often do I like talking to my friends on text and how much is like too much and how much makes me feel kind of anxious because it's too little, right? Like having those initial conversations, what feels good to me? And every single person is going to be different. So also making sure we talk about, yeah, different attachment styles, different communication styles. And this is particularly important if our children are neurodiverse and making them feel like whatever you land in that spectrum is okay, is good. And to be able to then with the interpersonal communicate that to people say, this is how much communication or touch or anything works for me. Tell me what works for you. And let's see if that aligns, right? Maybe we're a little different. We can compromise. And maybe there's some things that just, it's not a good fit. Then we're going to really talk about, yeah, communication. Because there's another concept that comes up a lot when teaching consent, which is we can say to make yes means yes, our key focus. We're moving away from just the the kind of outdated version of no means no, right? Because it's much more than um, a no, it's the presence of a yes. But again, growing up, we all grow up in this culture that we call rape culture. These two concepts come out of that. And one is called token resistance and the other is called token compliance, which is that we often feel like we can't actually answer honestly because there's a script we have to follow. So I'm going to say yes. And again, especially for cisgender boys and men, of course, I have to say yes to my partner of any gender, right? Because I'm a man and I have to want sex and I have to, I want to have sex in certain ways and all the time. And so I'm going to say yes, but it's not real. It's not genuine or token resistance, which is really interesting because again, like you're talking about, especially if we are uh, women or raised as women and we have a dominant father figure or parents who are trying to scare us, We're going to say no, and we don't even have maybe the knowledge or the ability to define what our yes is, right? We're like, no, I'm I'm supposed to resist, but like, yeah, I do want to kiss you, or I do want to hang out with you every evening, but like, I've been told that's bad, and it's going to create all this trouble for me, and so I'm saying no, and that's where sometimes when we talk about this in a large group, people will say, well, what about when someone says no and they mean yes, and a lot of consent educators with good intentions, we'll just shut that down. They won't address it. They'll be like, oh, that's not a thing. Of course, that what they're talking about is token resistance, right? And so what we want to say instead is, again, how do I foster healthy, open communication? One, by addressing that myself, but two, with any potential partner or any person I'm interacting with, how do I make sure they feel safe to tell me the truth, right? If they're saying, yeah, I want to do this, but their face is saying a different story or they're pulling back or I can feel their muscles tightening when I go to hug them. 
I need to check in with that. I need to say, wait a minute, I, maybe you're feeling pressure and, and let's, let's talk about this here. Or if they're saying no, and I think, I think they, they are also kind of leaning in. So I'm confused. Take that no as a no, but step back and say, can we talk about what you do want? Can we talk about what does feel good to you? And making sure that that communication is just open and free. And that, that takes effort and kind of a conscious awareness to do. Yeah. Can you talk about what consent really is? Because I think moms, we don't know what to say. Like, just if you don't want to do it, just say no. And I think then we're just stuck. Like, that's all we got in our arsenal of tools. So I know that it's kept evolving. So can you just describe what moms can teach their kids about that? And I will definitely say it is a huge topic. So I think hopefully they're getting some really great ideas starting to turn in their head from listening to this podcast, but definitely continue to look into this topic, continue to, you know, read and watch things and and really immerse yourself because again, this is a new kind of conversation we're having as a world, but also most of us did not grow up with it. And so we have a lot to unlearn ourselves. So mm-hmm. give yourself some grace in, in that journey. But key things I would think about and, and want to start learning and sharing with my kids is number one, really thinking about not just consent as verbal agreement, but what does it feel like, right? What does it feel like when I'm really excited and I want to do something, right? And that's why we talk about enthusiastic consent and affirmative consent, right? It's not just... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess I'll do this. Right. You can tell in the prosody of my voice, right? There was something inauthentic there. So thinking about what does it feel like when I really want something? Someone says, Hey, do you want to go get ice cream? And I'm like, yes. And our kids say, Oh yes. And I say, that's enthusiastic consent, right? We really want this ice cream. It's super hot outside and we love ice cream. And that was an easy thing. Right. If I'm like, do you want to eat some extra broccoli? It'd be really good for you. And you're like, yeah. (laughs) Or I'll give you extra time on your iPad. Yeah. Okay. I'll eat the broccoli. Right. That's not an enthusiastic consent. So discussing the difference there and then saying, how would this play out in everyday life? And I would definitely start with, again, non sexual situations. Your friend in homeroom says, hey, can we exchange numbers? I want to text you. And you're not sure you want to keep talking to them outside of class, right? How do you, how do you have that boundary? How do you say no in a way that you feel good about? And how do you deal with that? They, they might feel rejected or hurt. How do you deal with that in reverse? You say to somebody that you really like in class, Hey, let's hang out after school. I'm going to go get ice cream. And they say, "Mm, yeah, I I don't, I I think I'm busy. Right. And, and that's going to feel disappointing, but how do you work through those feelings, right? And again, all of this will translate into those intimate scenarios. The other big thing that I talk about is we can talk and talk and talk all day. And you can know all the components that, yes, uh, it has to be affirmative. It has to be enthusiastic. It has to be ongoing, all these different things, right? But you have to model it. Mm. You have to actually live a consent lifestyle, household, environment, family, if you want your your children to carry this out into the world, right? Good point. And and consent can come up even in our boundaries with our workplace, right? You see see mom turning off her work phone after work because I'm not available. It's this family time. I'm with you. You maybe see, again, in a family saying, you know what, that doesn't really feel good to me. I don't think I want to do, I don't want to play that board game tonight. I'm, I'm tired and it's not really working for me. And instead of saying, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, you're going to respect my no. And we're going to find something we can agree to together, right? And that, that is where we really, again, change cultural narratives is by being that example. Yeah. All right. So talk about consent and drinking and drugs. Mm. So this one, this one, yeah, it gets so much attention, right? And if our students go to college or our children, sorry, when our children go to college, then they are going to hear this a lot. They're going to get this orientation and maybe like an online class and different things are going to say, 
don't get drunk and have sex. And, and that's, yes, that's a good message. That's true. But it often gets very confusing. So one thing we want to clarify is we are talking about being truly intoxicated, right? If they are 21 and they're in grad school and they go out with their friends and have a glass of wine with a nice dinner, that doesn't mean that they can't kiss someone at the end of the night because they're out of their mind, right? We're not talking about that. But this is, you know, when we get to a point where maybe we have had a couple glasses of wine or they do go to a party and drink a good bit that we cannot fully understand what we're agreeing to. We cannot read someone's cues effectively. And we, and that will potentially cause a lot of harm. So we can't consent in those situations. So they're not okay, right? And, and same thing for drugs, right? We, it, we don't want to ever shame our young people and say, don't, but don't you ever do this. I better not have to ever talk to you about that. It can happen, right? They're young. They might experiment. And if something goes wrong while they're experimenting, we want them again to feel safe to come to us. But to say, you know, you, you won't be in a state of mind where you really know what's going on. And, Again, you could either cause harm to someone else or you could be harmed yourself. And so we don't want these things to mix. When I'm talking to really young teenagers and college students about this, the example I give is, I, I go up to them, they're like, oh, this is so confusing. This is so, such a gray area. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, it's not. I said, listen, if I took a bunch of drugs right now and then drank a bunch of alcohol and I said to you, yeah, let's do this. Would I be consenting? And they all laugh, they crack up and they're like, no, Dr. McGuire, you wouldn't be consenting. I'm like, okay, <laughs> not a gray area, right? You get it. You know when it's someone's not fully there or if there's any question if they are, it's a no, right? You, they understand. And it's just, sometimes we have to use humor to get that point across, but it's, it's a clear thing, really. No, that's great. Oh my gosh, there's so many things to talk about. Let me ask you this question. So if an incident does occur, where should your child go to help? In terms of my experience, there are so many girls I know who have been raped at school and they come home, take a break from college, kind of put themselves back together, but they don't want to take it to court because they don't want to feel like they're going to be exposed or that the burden of proof is on them. Yes. So this is such an important conversation and, and parents, you have so much power over making sure that your child has a safe and supportive experience. If something does go wrong, you have so much weight in your words and your actions in how they perceive that entire experience. So please be really mindful of that. So Again, we're talking about our children when they're over 18. Of course, if they're under 18, we are have to report that. That's a different situation. If they are over 18, then they might come home and be simply acting different. Or we might even be video chatting with them or talking on the phone. And, and we know something's, well, something's up. What is, is it the stress of school? Is it something more? And again, if this is a, a regular ongoing conversation you have, and they see you supporting survivors and they see you talking about consent, it's much more likely if you say to them, hey, is everything okay? How are things really going? They might open up and say, yeah, I tried to follow all the things you taught me, but you know, again, I froze or I've been dating this person for a year or I'm engaged to them or we just got married and they're doing things that don't feel good and I don't feel safe. Please pay attention to that. Don't ask them, well, did they hold you down? Well, did you scream no? Are they hitting you, right? They can be in extreme danger and those things not be present. So putting that aside, so they come to you and they're at, in a college environment and something's going on in that realm. They have a couple of options, right? They can report it to Title IX and that is going to start an investigation. And that can be really difficult, right? That can feel very intrusive and exploitive. So if they say, I want to do this because I want this person to face consequences potentially, and I want the school to be aware of what's going on and I want protection. So even when they first file that report, if there's no finding, they can still get 
protective measures put in place. So for example, again, even if they're married to this person, they can be separated if they're in the same class. Their dorm can be changed. They can have an escort around school, et cetera. So that can be really great. But they have to decide, is this something I want to move forward with? And if not, what are my other options? So they can also, in certain situations, report it to the police. The first step you want to do, though, looking at either of those, is talk to a victim advocate. Most schools have them. Not all do. So then you might have to go to a community crisis center. But talk to someone who's in that role because they're a confidential resource, right? They're not going to trigger an investigation either way. If you talk to a professor or even a friend or an RA, they, they might have to report that to Title IX and therefore it's out of your hands. So talk to the VH or talk to a therapist. There's a lot of different options, again, on campus and off and say, let's walk through some of these different scenarios Sometimes it might be that um, we can collect evidence and keep that on file, but they don't want to file a report. So if there's a physical assault and there's DNA evidence, we can keep that on file. And the other big thing to help them with is, again, when they're talking to that therapist or that victim advocate, to know that we support them no matter what. Because a lot of times, again, with good intentions, we'll say, well, you, you better take this to the police. You better take this to Title IX because this is terrible and I can't believe this person's stalking you. Or I can't believe they're saying this to you, this professor saying this to you in class, much less something um, more physically violent. What does that do? It takes away the power and agency of the person who's already been victimized. No matter how good our intentions are, no matter how much we think it's helpful, it's never a good thing to take that away because that's exactly what's happening to them in the misconduct or abuse situation. Their power's being taken away and now we're taking it away once again. So make sure that you are telling them, you know what, whether you wanna do something today or you wanna look at this in a year or you want to do something right now, we're with you, we've got your back. We're gonna connect you to professionals who can help you make that decision and we're gonna be with you all the way. Mm, that's good. And one thing that you've talked about, and I just want to make this explicit, is when something traumatic happens, and so a date rape is traumatic, you are going to have a stress response. And that could be fight, flight, or freeze. And most of the time, if you're being overpowered, you freeze. And I have talked to so many girls where that's confusing because they feel like it's their fault because they didn't say no or didn't do something in that situation. I think it can be confusing for moms because you think the girl's confused because she couldn't say no or she was frozen or was in the situation. And then you can judge your daughter because she didn't, quote, do anything. Freeze response is a real thing. A freeze response is you literally freeze you can't think, you can't move, you almost feel paralyzed. And we don't talk about this, so we don't understand like what's happening. This, this is a lower brain function that is trying to protect us, but in those situations, it's not very protective. Exactly. And this is the main thing our most primitive part of our brain likes to do because it does keep us safe in a sense, right? It keeps us alive and has through our thousands of years of evolution. Again, we can't decide that, right? We don't get to go into that part of our brain and say, okay, should I freeze, fight, or flee? I, I don't know. Let's discuss. No, right? Our body just decides and takes over. And it really is that out of our control, like you're saying. This is one of my major concerns with the way prevention is often framed, even when parents are trying to like gear their kids up for the college experience, they'll often buy them. All right, with drug detection devices, they'll give them self-defense classes. They'll do all these different things and they'll be like, see, I have prepared you so that when that person comes at you in the dark hallway in your dorm, you'll be able to blow your whistle and use your bear spray and fight back and do all this and then they come home and they say, yeah, it wasn't like that. You know, again, this is some, this was someone I thought was my friend, or this was someone I was very excited to go on a date with, 
or I was intoxicated and I embarrassed to tell you, or those are the majority of situations. It is very, very small number that are somebody that, you know, you're going to feel like you're going to fight back against. And so in any of those scenarios, even if it is that person in the dark hallway, even with all those tools and knowledge right in our hands, right in our minds, our body is most likely to shut down. We want to make sure that we are not ever blaming someone for that. Or say, again, oftentimes the immediate line of questioning is, well, did you say no? Well, did you scream? Did you hit them? Come on, come on. I gave you that, I gave you that class. We gave you those tools. We gave you the, why didn't you do it? Right? And even sometimes legally, we will see judges and lawyers and police officers say this too. Well, come on. They, they gave you all that information. Why didn't you use it? Maybe you were kind of okay with it. Maybe you're just regretting something the next day, right? And again, this is victim blaming. This is horrific and it is just so pervasive and so common. So really, again, the main thing I want parents to do is think about the times that maybe you've even said this in the back of your mind when you hear a story or you've heard it in your community, et cetera. And really think about how do I unlearn that? How do I change that narrative in my mind so that I don't perpetuate these kinds of myths? And I support my child or anyone else if they freeze, which is so common. Well, we could go on and on, but we're going to have to land this plane. How can parents reach out to you and where can they find your books? Um, yeah, they can definitely reach out to me through my website, which is Dr. Dr. Laura, L-A-U-R-A, McGuire, M-C-G-U-I-R-E dot com. And they can find articles and uh, my books and ways to contact me there. If they are looking for resources for their school or community, they can also go to my business's website, which is Equity and agency all spelled out.com and uh, I, I look forward hopefully to hearing some of their thoughts and questions and coming out to some communities to continue these conversations well your work is so important and I'm sure it's very frustrating at the same time but I so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing and it's so important thank you so much I'm so glad we got to have this conversation today yeah me too this concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>